Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to the School of Christi of the Oratory, the School of Christ, and we're continuing this evening our reading of Romano Guardini's Meditations Before Mass. And uh, if you're new to the group or if you're watching via live stream, Guardini wrote this work back in the 1940s, early 40s. And so it was part of the Second Vatican Council, but I think everybody who's been a part of the group over these uh, past months would agree that uh, Guardini's reflections uh, are very striking in the sense of how deeply they speak to our own day and how deeply they speak to the need for us to understand uh, the liturgy uh, of the church in order to enter into it more fully. And over the past year or so, we've spent a lot of time uh, simply speaking about the interior disposition that one brings uh, to Mass itself. And so if you remember early on, we talked about silence, stillness, composure, uh, and then we gradually worked our way into the liturgy of the Word and the Church's understanding of the Word, uh, both uh, proclaimed and then preached. Uh, in the second part of his book, which we've begun, Guardini begins to speak of the liturgy of the Eucharist itself. And uh, I think I've said it so many times, of all chapters or of all meditations, this is probably the most important one we've read. And I've said that in so many groups, so it doesn't really mean anything anymore. Uh, but it struck me as going through this meditation, how important it is, uh, especially in our own day, uh, when there is a, a tendency to treat Christianity like uh, a myth. And uh, Christ himself is mythological. As we often ought to understand Christianity and even something like the, the Eucharist, the celebration of the Eucharist as uh, a ritual that is uh, similar to what we find in uh, other world religions or mythologies that were symbolically it's filled with meaning, but not rooted in any specific historical event. And uh, for Guardini, this is something that would be to radically strip the uh, the, the faith in the Eucharist uh, of meaning, that what we believe in is an historical person. Uh, as we discussed last time, the one who instituted the Eucharist and to be done in a specific way. It wasn't the, the church itself or the apostles that instituted the Eucharist. It was Christ himself and uh, ordained that it would be celebrated in the specific way that he celebrated it. And tonight, Guardini moves on to discussing the Mass as memorial. And all, often this is a very difficult term for us to understand. We think of memory and memory of an historical event as though we're recreating it in some way in what we're doing in the chapel. And so oftentimes we can misunderstand what it is that's taking place, that it's memorial not in the way that we typically understand the use of the word, uh, there's something far more uh, striking that is taking place. And this is what Bordini will be addressing in this reflection. It's for this reason, I think it's so, uh, so important, as you'll see. And in fact, he says it directly. Uh, just uh, if you're following along in the text, the red uh, print is, italicized print is my uh, reflection as we begin uh, the reading itself. 
Romano Gordino in this reflection is addressing something of utmost importance. He tells us what is at stake is so important and so rarely understood fully that we should spare no pains to bring out the thought completely and clearly. So even Gordini says it this time, so I guess I'm pretty safe in saying that this is one of the more important meditations, that we should spare no pains in, in coming to understand this with, with a kind of clarity. Uh, in the Mass, we are concerned with one single person and his destiny, because his life and work is decisive for men's salvation, because he is the Savior. And so this is not simply a story that has religious meaning, that speaks to certain realities of our life. What we are speaking of as taking place within the Mass itself is the destiny and the life, the person of Christ uh, being made present to us. Uh, and this has a, a weight and significance like no other, certainly, uh, religious practice because uh, Christ is our Savior, that our destiny is, is tied uh, to what it is that we receive in the Holy Eucharist and what we come to participate in. Jesus, Guardini tells us, is not a mythical figure. He's not just another personification of the spiritual power of redemption, not a savior godhead comparable to Osiris and Dionysius. He really lived. He was a living, the living son of God become man. It is an historical person and reality that is made present to us a person and life that has the abundance of spiritual, all-redeeming strength. The Mass is instituted and ordained by the Lord himself and passes on his entire destiny to us all. So it's a striking way that he, he puts this to us, that uh, within the Eucharist is the all-redeeming strength uh, of Christ and the cross, or the whole Paschal mystery, passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it's his destiny, his entire destiny, that is made present and that we are drawn into and participate in a radical way. In this act, our Lord continues the history of the kingdom of God present among men. It is not to participate in a time-honored symbolical act that gives religious expression to our own existence. And so, uh, we're not celebrating something that was done simply 2,000 years ago that is filled with meaning for us, that speaks to our, our life and our existence. We're doing something far more than that. Uh, it is the kingdom of God present to us. And I think for a lot of Christians, there is this sense that with the ascension of Christ, the reality of the incarnation or the presence of God among us in this incarnate fashion uh, ceases to exist uh, and that our connection with him is in and through our, our faith alone, but in an abstract notional manner, that it's not a concrete, tangible experience of the presence of Christ and also his redemptive work upon the cross, the redemptive mystery of the cross and the salvation that comes through it. And, uh, and so this is what Guardini is trying to draw us out of, that we, there was a strong movement, as he'll say in the text, uh, to treat Christ as a mythological figure, one, one among many, rather than as an historical figure. And this is what we have to struggle and, and fight against. 
Uh, it is not to participate, I said, in some time-honored symbolical act that gives religious expression in our own existence. Through the Eucharistic celebration, the Holy Spirit makes us participants in the divine life that is able to transfigure our whole mortal being and his passage from death to life, from time to eternity. The Lord Jesus also draws us with him to experience the Passover. The Mass we celebrate, in the Mass we celebrate Passover. We during life, I'm sorry, we during Mass are with Jesus who died and is risen and he draws us forth to eternal life. Passover is made present and active each time we celebrate the Mass, which is the meaning of memorial. Taking part in the Eucharist enables us to enter the Paschal mystery of Christ, giving ourselves to pass over with him from death to life, meaning there on Calvary. The Mass is experiencing Calvary. It is not a spectacle. So when we're at Mass, we're not... Uh, watching uh, a performance or a play being enact enacted, even one with the greatest of meaning. What is actually taking place is our participation in the Paschal mystery. And in and through it, we are transfigured with Christ. We die and rise with him. And we already begin to experience that fullness of life with, within our very being. And again, it's, you know, for this reason, I think that when we approach the Mass, Everything that uh, Guardini has said up to this point uh, becomes even more important when we see, we see what's actually taking place, how we prepare ourselves in the days leading up to, how we embrace the grace that is given to us afterwards, uh, should really shape and direct our, our life in, in its fullness. The, it should deepen our prayer. We should live from Eucharist to Eucharist, seeking to allow this grace uh, to bear the greatest amount of fruit possible within us. And uh, uh, we become the guardians and protectors of what is holy. We are given uh, to participate in the very life of God. And so we become, in the truest sense of the word, God bears. And uh, certainly this is far more than uh, simply an important teaching or uh, a time of transition in a person's life. Uh, it wasn't just an instrument that uh, Christ used to teach us something about the nature of love, that it is the giving to us of, of his life, of his destiny, of the redemptive life and love that comes to us from the cross. And again, in not in an abstract way, but in the most concrete way that we can possibly imagine. And more often, than not, we don't imagine or think about it with, with that kind of clarity. Okay, so that's the introductory material. Any thought or comment before we jump into his text? Andrea, it looks like you have a thought. Do you have, nope, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I jumped the gun. Okay, so we'll jump into his text here. Uh, don't be put off by the length of it. I think we'll be able to go through it uh, rather quickly, uh, because it's more of a narrative style tonight. Okay. Preceding the preceding chapter stresses the timeless institutional nature of the Mass, so essential for our understanding of it. We saw that it is no immediate, hence necessarily varying, expression of religious sentiments or needs, but something permanent, arranged once and for all. 
that it was authorized by him who has all power in heaven and earth, that it demands to be performed according to the will of the institutor. So it, it's, it's Christ that gives us the, it is, who gives us the Eucharist. And he gives it to us in such a way that he institutes it to be, to be followed in a specific fashion. We aren't to alter it according to whim or sentiment or even to what we think is the particular need of our own day. That somehow we would, each generation would shape the Eucharist to speak more fully to its generation. Uh, because then it would be constantly altering and eventually I think there, it would be diminished. And uh, in some ways, I think that has already happened in uh, some of the alterations that have taken place here in the, the past 50 or 60 years. Not all of them certainly have been problematic, but I think the experimentation, one would agree, that went, went on uh, muddied the waters for people, so much so that not, not as many believe in the real presence of Christ within the Blessed Sacrament. Now, he says, we proceed a step further, a small step, for what is at stake is so important and rarely understood fully that we should spare no pains to bring out the thought completely and clearly. And so even Guardini acknowledges this is a tiny step, and it might seem like we're, we're laboring over something small, but in reality it isn't. If we don't uh, capture the sense of, of this, if we don't understand this, then it undermines uh, what it is that we, we do in the Mass. And so we don't want to move quickly through this, but really allow ourselves to unpack it. The institution of the Mass has one further element. It is a memorial. So this is the, small, this is the, the one small thing that he wants to, small thing that he wants to discuss tonight. Institutions appear everywhere in the religious life of mankind. They give freely streaming experience its permanent and binding form. The contents of that form vary greatly. They may evolve around an important turning point in the calendar of the year, spring, for instance. Then the celebration welcomes and honors the new beginning of growth with festivities that evoke, I'm sorry, invoke the blessing of the Godhead. Or the theme may be in an important turning point in the seasons of human life, the celebration of adolescence in which the maturing youth is consecrated for the life that awaits him. His powers of fertility are sanctified and the new adult is received into the tribal community. Whatever the motive behind the celebration, some essential life process always receives its religious consecration. Some personality of talent and authority introduced the chief symbols, adapting and developing them to suit his particular tribe or race, and making the whole obligatory for, for posterity. So in so many cultures throughout uh, the world and throughout history, we, we have rituals that are practiced, that, uh, that are filled with meaning, and that are tied to all the essential elements uh, of what it is to be a human being. And, and so in some sense, they can be profound uh, and uh, they can be very important in those transitional moments of life from, from birth to the grave. And, uh, and so this is a common element in world religions and uh, within myths itself. And 
we need to be able to acknowledge and understand that with clarity in order to be able to make the essential distinction that Christianity is not a mythological religion and Christ himself is not a mythological figure. He's an historical figure and in him the fullness of God is revealed to us. And he chose specific people, has ordained that they pursue a certain path in their life and uh, and that this is historically documented, that the the historical reality of the person of Christ is not something that is in question. Quite aside from the person who instituted Holy Mass, what takes place there is of an entirely different nature. The tri- in the tribal celebrations, universal values, teachings, and regulations of a nature half religious, half natural find expression. Seasonal or life rhythms, guilt and expiation, the beginning and end of war, the major visitations of drought, hunger, pestilence, and the like, which threatens the coming year. In the Mass, we are concerned with a single person and his destiny. What is repeatedly executed and invoked is no natural or intellectual or mysterious power relationship common to all human existence, but the memory of one who lived once and of his destiny. Why? Not because he was a great ruler or lawgiver or warrior from a worldly point of view, an innovator of important arts or sciences, but because his life and work is decisive for men's salvation, because he is the Savior. And so, you know, we share a common humanity. And so, in, in my mind, it's always, it's never, I'm sorry, it's never seemed surprising to me that we would see certain common elements among world religions that speak to common elements of what it is to be a human being, that we all go through similar passages and events in our life that have deep meaning. And so that there would be a similarity to these things, in my mind, makes sense. And, uh, and it even, I think, brings a clarity to us as to why Christ would reveal himself in such a way and why he would manifest himself so fully to us in the Holy Eucharist, something that is very common to us, eating, you know, a common meal that he would give us as our very food, give himself to us as our very food and drink, because this is such a common aspect of what it is to be a human being. Both the communion, the companion, uh, companionship that we have within our common meals, but just eating itself, nourishing ourselves, hold, uh, holding ourselves in, in life and being. And so, but what Christ does is decisive for our salvation. That the, the other mythological thing, uh, realities that are applied to particular cultures have meaning. They might even become obligatory, as he says here, by those who institute them, uh, but they do not save. Uh, they might have value in terms of what they express, uh, but they do not make present to us the Savior or his salvative work. And this is precisely what we're saying does take place within the Mass. And so we cannot stroll into church or into a chapel uh, as if we are entering into any other place. 
uh, or even any other kind of sacred space, that there should be something that overwhelmingly alters our perception of reality, of ourselves as human beings, of, of who it is that we're going to encounter, what's taking place there. Uh, all of this should uh, uh, change our demeanor and the, the way from the, and he's talked about these things from the beginning of the book, the way that we enter into the church, the composure, the silence, the stillness, how we prepare ourselves for this divine event that we are being drawn into. Uh, when we see that breakdown within the life of the church, we know that there's something problematic taking place. It means that we've lost sight of exactly what he's saying here. If we begin to treat it simply as a meal, uh, you know, and certainly many times in seminary, I've heard it described in such way, you know, and, uh, and when we change language from altar to table and things such as that, uh, fundamentally, we are, are altering something of great significance. You know, uh, the things that we, uh, the distinctions that we make affect the way that we uh, believe, what we believe about the Eucharist and how we celebrate it. And so when we banalize these, these things, we, we run a great risk. I think the thought there is to somehow make it more accessible or understandable to people approachable. Uh, but when we do that in a whimsical way uh, and just simply altering things to alter them, then we, we risk losing the sense that we are participating in the decisive event of salvation that is made present to us. That we should have this sense of Christ present before us and that we are at the foot of Calvary when we come into the chapel. Of course, we do find other religious celebrations in which the sacred action invokes a specific religious figure of the past and represents important aspects of his destiny. In the Greek mysteries, for example, Dionysius' death at the hands of the, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Maenads? Menads? I know that it means raving ones. <laughs> uh, typically presented as women. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Although I think that is true. <laughs> uh, and the resurrection of his torn body to new life. The Demeter cult, which recalls the lament of the earth mother for her lost daughter and the joy of finding her again. These fest festivals, too, dramatize a specific event. But the beings represented in the Dionysian mysteries and in those of the Demeter or, the, or Hippolytus were never historical. Their importance lay in their relation to the senses and in the powers they personified. So an important distinction. You know, they aren't spe speaking of a real person, but rather they're speaking to the senses. And in some sense, I think that's why they probably were so powerful, uh, that they spoke to something genuine about who we are as human beings, uh, whether that was a positive or negative reality. Uh, nonetheless, it could, you know, could speak to the darker elements of who we are as human beings or the more positive, uh, but nonetheless would speak to them in a very positive way or a powerful way. Mythological figures personify elements of the world itself. Dionysius never really lived in a specific country, never met 
histor uh, historical fate. What reality he did possess was the mystery of life he represented in all its glory and danger, a mystery that prevails wherever there are living realities and which is particularly apparent at the junctures of life, spring, harvest time, and the like. Dionysius was a creation of mythical poetry. So there is great meaning and there, uh, there is great uh, uh, significance in the events described uh, in, in these mythical stories. Uh, but there's, again, you know, a rather significant dif difference here that we see within Christianity. Uh, he goes on to say, the distinction is fundamental. I'm sorry, Dionysius was a creation of mythical poetry. Jesus was no myth, no poetry, no symbol, but reality. The distinction is fundamental because once religious research had discovered the myths, there was a strong effort to make Christianity another myth religion. Actually, its sharp distinction from the world of myth is indisputable. Even the fact that its founder and his apostles come to us from the land and the tradition of the Old Testament precludes any blurring of the borders of reality. From the Old Testament is any, for the Old Testament is anything but mythical. And so this is where at times you have to be you know, careful with scholarship. Uh, you know, that a certain thesis is put forward or a hypothesis is put forward and often put forward in such strong ways that I think uh, as if it's fact. And certainly there was a period in uh, biblical scholarship uh, uh, where there was this attempt to connect the stories of Genesis and the flood and, uh, and Christ himself uh, to other, uh, to, to, to mythological stories and uh, to call into question the very existence of Christ himself. And uh, when you add uh, scholarship behind that, you know, the kind of weight that often goes along with that, it did have its influence. And the, when those in, within the church and even uh, those who taught in seminaries were influenced by this, you could you began to see, I think, a real shift uh, in, in the way that uh, people would think about Christianity as a whole, but our, our practice of something like the uh, of the sacraments and uh, a kind of whittling away, you know, who is the historical Jesus and, uh, you know, a whittling away from that as, as if, you know, the whole history of Christianity is simply uh, an accretion of all these uh, details about who Christ is, that all of these things have been added on, perhaps to an historical figure, but none of these things are really reflective of, of his life historically. And uh, to, to do that is certainly to undermine, undermine our faith. Such creative personalities live so close to existence, were so deeply imbued with the total religious experience of a race or an age, and expressed the essence of that race or age so perfectly that their vision was authoritative for a very long time. But always it was a question of myths, not of reality, or to be more exact, not of historical reality. What is real in the myth is the implication it gives to existence. 
the mysterious power it expresses through the symbol of the God and his faith. So the implication that it gives to existence. So all these stories speak to something about human existence. And they speak of it in a very powerful way through these images of uh, particular mythological figures or mythological gods and their particular fates. Myths of this kind do not exist in the Old Testament, which is based not on a religious world mystery as glimpsed by sacrosanct visionaries of hallowed shrines, but on the simple reality of, of holy God who exists independently of the world. God is not ergund or mysterious foundation of the world, but the creator and Lord. When it so pleases him, he summons specific people, draws them into a particular relationship with himself, and imposes upon them the obligation to carry out his will. Atmosphere, attributes, spiritual attitude, decisive values, and life forms here, forms here, everything is different. Even those texts, which at first glance seem to be of mythical nature, for example, the stories of creation of the flood, on closer scrutiny reveal they have nothing to do with mythology. It is blind and profoundly dishonest to speak of the creation and flood myths of the Old Testament. Anyone who sincerely wants to see the essential difference between uh, the, I'm sorry, between the stories of scripture and the sages of, of the Babylonian and other oriental countries can. Jesus comes to us not from the shadowy realm of mythology, but from the clear sunlight of the Old Testament. So Christ arises out of a particular history, uh, and a particular history that was set in preparation for his coming. and not meant for one culture and race alone. And I think this is something curious that uh, Guardini makes a a point of stressing, that even though God calls the Jews, the the chosen people, and it's from them that the Messiah would rise, but the Messiah is meant not simply, and God's will is not meant simply for that one culture, that one race, they are to be a light to the nations, and the Messiah who would come from them would be the Messiah for all people and would be Savior. And so even how we think of uh, Christ being a Jew and the Messiah coming from among the Jews, among the chosen people, and the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament tends at times to be myopic. And uh, I think there was even a struggle within the early church. We see sort of that myopic notion, that the struggle to, to make those who are becoming converts first convert to Judaism and even undergo circumcision and embrace certain dietary laws, uh, that there was a struggle there to understand that Christ is the, the savior of all and to, to require uh, converts to first become Jewish makes no sense whatsoever, especially in the eyes of Paul. And the first apostles began to recognize this. They even began you know, to eat what was clearly uh, held under Jewish law to be you know, unclean food. 
you know, with the coming of Christ, they began to separate themselves from that. We remember Paul rebuking Peter from uh, sort of wavering about this when there was a strong element uh, um, among the Jewish Christians to compel those who converted uh, to embrace uh, these pr practices. Ren. Um, yeah, you know, that's really interesting. Um, and I think it, that trend to that, that, uh, that tension between like, well, Jesus was a Jew and like, Jesus wasn't a Catholic, right? Like <laughs> Jesus was himself and he was Jewish. And like, I think that tension has existed up until even way more recently. So I very weirdly know this whole collection of Hebrew songs. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I was little, there was this uh, trend in some of the circles mm -hmm. I existed in for Catholic Christians to call themselves fulfilled Jews. Mm -hmm. And so they called themselves fulfilled Jews. And like they would go around, like, I mean, you wouldn't say that to a Jewish person because it was like weirdly insulting. I mean, the whole mm -hmm. thing was odd, but they would learn Hebrew worship hymns. And um, we would have like all these little customs and you would celebrate Passover. Mm -hmm. But like, and I grew up thinking it was kind of cool and normal to celebrate Passover, but it's like actually a little odd seeing as we have the institution of the Eucharist to celebrate that now, that night. Mm -hmm. So for like, for a Catholic Christian to not go to the mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday and right. rather to stay home and have a Seder meal, mm -hmm. that's weird, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's just odd, but like, that's what we would we would do. Right. And then we would like sing Hebrew hymns at our Seder dinner. And like, right. it's just like, it's just, it's odd. Like there was that tension that still existed of like needing to identify um, with that. So- yeah. um, Well, I think there was an- uh, yeah. uh, you know, an attempt at that point to make that connection uh, with the historical roots and the connection between the, the Eucharist and the Passover. And so on one level, I understand it. But uh, on, on another level, I think what Guardini is telling us here is that, again, historically, it's a myopic way of viewing things, that we're speaking of the Lord of history and uh, the Lord of life, and that he has chosen a specific people uh, and given them a, a specific, made his will known to them specifically of how they were to live their life in preparation for the incarnation. But with the incarnation, then comes the consummation uh, where there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Greek. That, you know, that there is a, a radical union and communion now that exists in, in the person of Christ. Uh, and that the incarnation or the, the entire Paschal mystery uh, reshapes our identity and our understanding our, of ourselves as human beings. That is no longer tied to a particular race or nation. And it doesn't mean that we dismiss the historical aspects of that and, uh, you know, but certainly I think that we read the, the Old Testament in light of its fulfillment in Christ. 
And uh, sometimes I think we, we will fail to do that. And, uh, and it's for this reason, I think, that Guardini makes some subtle distinctions here in the final paragraphs in order to open up things for us. That not only is Christ not a mythological figure, uh, but a historical figure, but he's also an historical figure that, that far, you know, uh, uh, goes far beyond uh, simply being tied to one culture, that what he teaches, what he reveals is meant for all people. And, you know, I think the, the loss of the drive, missionary drive, and this, the, uh, in so many elements of the church, or this loss of the sense of the uniqueness of Christ as sa Savior, and that salvation only comes through him, that, you know, there's, a, you know, in this attempt to be ecumenical, I think we lose sight of the reality of what Christ himself revealed, that he's the savior of all men and women. And that it's, but it's salvation that comes only in and through him. You know, that there isn't this equality among world religions and, uh, and certainly not with these mythological uh, religions that we've been that Guardini has been talking about here as well. Okay. Any other th thoughts or comments? I, I interrupted you there. Did you have something additional you wanted to add? No. Okay. All right. Where did I leave off here? Jesus is not. I think there, so. There's another question, Father David, okay. before you continue. Anthony and Andrea. Uh, yes, Father, mm -hmm. I was uh, just reflecting that you were speaking about Dionysus because I mm -hmm. remember when uh, I was in a Christian, I read this book, The Jesus Mysteries, and I think it was very popular at some time mm -hmm. that goes and talks in length about this uh, Dionysus figure and how they are trying to tie that to Christ and basically mm -hmm. make Christ just another one right. of this uh, type of Dionysus, Osiris type. Mm -hmm. It's myth, right? Right. And, uh, you know, it, it just occurs to me that, you know, Christ said very clearly how, you know, the, our salvation comes through the narrow road and we tend to just deviate either, either into over-rationalizing, just try to think things mm -hmm. through in our limited head or right. over-sentimentalizing it and, you know, just become very emotional. And, you know, he's just beyond reason and beyond emotion and I feel that you know we just do what you were saying that you know we don't evangelize anymore that we have become lukewarm you know mm -hmm. that that fire has been lost and you know we have lost the ability to relate to Jesus the person mm -hmm. and when you relate to Jesus the person you will find out that he is a real person right and uh, I yeah I just I just feel that somehow you know just this overemphasis that you were mentioning in the seminary sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. to just try to dig into the historical Jesus or something like that, that's actually very detrimental because it's right. not focusing on the right thing, you know, which is getting to know the real person of Christ. Yeah. And, you know, I even think that there's something somewhat diabolical about it too. And, you know, I don't want to be uh, 
sensationalistic here in saying this, but, you know, around the holidays, around Christmas and Easter is when they typically show those documentaries, you know, who is Jesus of, of Nazareth, you know, that is fraught. They bring in all these sort of, you know, liberal intellectuals or historians or biblical scholars to do exactly what Bardini says we're not supposed to do or shouldn't do. And that it's, uh, again, uh, a mistaken notion of Christianity and, uh, and strips it of its meaning. And, uh, and I think you're right, you know, the, it weakens our, you know, the drive within us to evangelize. If we don't believe this, that the fullness of Christ, of his life, of his destiny, becomes present to us at Mass. And that more than that, we are, we are drawn into that reality and transfigured by it. If we don't believe that, and that this isn't on our mind in shaping the way that we live our life, then there is not going to be that fire within us to bear witness to that truth. If Christ is simply a great teacher, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we see within the scriptures, you know, the, you know, calling him, you know, rabbinai, teacher, you know, that, you know, there wasn't this, even among his, some of his disciples and even among Mary Magdalene at the resurrection, you know, there still wasn't this sense of who had, he had become for her and for the world at that moment. You know, when he's, she's, he says, do not cling to me, you know, that he's already communicating something to her, you know, that, I, you know, I want to be what I want to be for you and what God wants to be for you, not what was and what you lament and mourn the loss of and rejoice at regaining here in my presence, but the reality now that it is made possible for you, which is to be sons and daughters of God, to deification, to participate in the life of, of the Trinity. And so, you know, I don't want to come off sounding harsh in reading Guardini, you know, because we see the struggle right from the beginning uh, for people to enter into the mystery of what God has revealed to them in, in Christ and to embrace it in its fullness. And, you know, we know, you know, the disciples were all hidden away, you know, and in the upper room, you know, fearful. And it was only when it was revealed fully to them that, you know, and that they grasped that reality, that they were filled with this invincible faith and courage that allowed them to uh, go out into the market square and preach, you know, at the cost of losing their own, own life. So they went from fearful, timid individuals to these bold proclaimers of the gospel. And, you know, among the great spiritual writers, we, we hear this spoken over and over again, that we cannot turn Christ or Christianity into an ideology, you know, a, a theology that's devoid from this personal relationship with Christ and, and, you know, is devoid of a participation in that mystery, you know, where it's turned into an intellectual construct, that it has to be something far more for us, or it becomes demonic theology. It becomes something that leads us not to the truth, but away from it. 
I heard another tone there. Ren. Or Andrea, did you have a, another, a thought before? Yeah, oh, I think Andrea had a thought. Okay, go ahead. I saw the hands stay up there, but I wasn't sure if it just, okay. My turn. Okay. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to make a, a mm. small comment and uh, this may just be something on my part because English is not my first language, mm -hmm. but I was always surprised when I would hear, um, sometimes from the pulpit, in Catholicism, we believe, in Christianity, we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God, um, that the, um, the Eucharist is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And what really confused me is hearing we believe. Mm -hmm. And again, that could be because I don't understand the, the word fully, but what I always thought at that moment was like, what, you're not sure? You believe, you're not sure, instead of saying the Eucharist is the, is the body, blood, soul, divinity. Mm -hmm. Everyone else says, in my religion, we believe. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to make this small comment that that has been something that throughout the years has actually kind of uh, eroded uh, or weakened my faith, right. hearing that we believe that instead of this is how it is. Yeah. It's interesting. I'd never heard anybody describe it in that way, but it all, it already, the way that we communicate it can show that we're disconnected from that reality by one step. We believe, as you said, we believe, but it, it doesn't hold the conviction say that we hear in the preaching of the first apostles, you know, that, uh, we articulated in a disconnected, somewhat disconnected way. And it, I think it betrays in some way a, a lack of faith uh, to those who hear the word then. You know, how often do you hear some, someone from the pulpit say that they love Christ? You know, or, you know, it's, he's often spoken of in abstract terms. And uh, in the same way that we talk about so many different things, you know, whether it's our, our practice of the sacramental life or of prayer itself, it's often in this overly intellectualized fashion. Uh, but that it, oftentimes that bespeaks uh, sort of a, a lack of connectedness to the reality that has been made uh, present to us and that we participate in it in this, in this beautiful way. So, you know, I think that, I, I, you know, I've been struck over and over again, the importance of Gordini's writing and his work here, uh, because I think there's a tendency in our day to focus simply on the externals as if somehow changing the externals is going to change inwardly. To bring us to that point that Andrea was talking about there, you know, from moving from the we believe, you know, this disconnected articulation of something to this expression that arises from the depths of one's, one's being. And we have to be very careful about that. We saw what was lost when things were just set, us, set aside, just changing the external 
realities and practices did not bring people to a greater intimacy or sense of participation in that mystery or in that life. Uh, you know, it made it, you know, something very sentimental, casual, banal, and, and simply returning to what was done isn't going to be a corrective to that. You know, that there has to be, uh, you know, a, a far greater uh, a kind of evangelization that takes place where people are brought to Christ and where they have an encounter with Christ. And, you know, just in my own limited experience, the, the thing that was most impactful was being brought to Mass. And the experience, the encounter there, that certainly was beyond understanding, beyond grasp intellectually for me. I didn't know what was going on, but, it, you know, the reality was still present there. It was present and expressed in the faith of everyone at that Mass and the priests celebrating the Mass and what took place there. It was tangible, concrete, real for me. And that's before reading anything about Catholicism. It was the most powerful moment and turning point for me in, in terms of the movement toward Catholicism. And I think one of our problems is that so often when we speak to others uh, about our faith, we don't speak to them first about Christ and the impact of that relationship on our life. We begin to you know, speak about, uh, you know, again, things in a very abstract way, or we don't bring them, you know, to mass or uh, something along those lines. I've, I've seen adoration have impact upon people who have having a clue as to what's going on. You know, what's that thing up on the altar? What do you call that? That shiny thing on the altar, you know, with that little circle in the middle. That, you know, but so they don't have a clue as to what that is. But when they walk into the chapel, there often is this overpowering, tangible experience of the presence of God. And to me, that's the most convicting and powerful thing of all. You know, that we, we focus on words, and in our focus upon words, we strip them of meaning. You know, that, you know they just go in one ear and out the other, and we add to the noise of the world. And so we aren't witnessing in a real sense to our, the, the love of God and the love that he has for us and the love that we have for him. You know, a person kneeling in the pew, you know, at, at mass and the, the, or at adoration could speak with greater, far greater conviction and have far greater impact upon, the mo upon somebody else as, as a, opposed to the most eloquent homily or sermon. Because out of that heart arises this real and genuine faith that makes present, allows the other to see Christ. And you know, the images in the gospel that are powerful, the one that just came to mind was, you know, when the some 
individuals, you know, rip open the, the roof and drop down the individual who's, who's crippled. And in, a, in the Gospels tells us Christ sees their faith, their faith, not the faith of the, the man who couldn't walk, but he sees the faith of those who ripped open the ceiling and drop, drop him down into his midst. And I've always been struck by that because it, 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 somehow it, it says that the faith of others can you know, bring about miracles in, in our life as well, that the, the strength and the power of their faith that made them bring him to Christ is what, you know, uh, helped bring about his ultimate healing. And I think often we, we forget these, we, these things. You know, we should be ripping people's ceilings open and... <laughs> You know, I think what's been disturbing to so many people through this pandemic is that they have no sense of the presence of Christ the healer, of, of the divine physician. Somebody made a comment on one of my posts where, I where one of the saints, John Chrysostom, describes the church as a hospital, you know, where people are brought and healed by the divine physician. And one person commented and said, you know, they've taken, you know, where have they taken all of our hospitals? You know, and, and I think, I think in some ways the person was right. You know, there might be a lot of reasons for this and we don't need to get into that, but I think there was a profound loss there and a feeling of abandonment that what was needed the most was spiritual healing and the sense of the presence of he who is the Lord of life and through whom all healing comes, whether it's at the hand, hands of a doctor or a nurse or through a miracle, it's still by the action of, of God's grace. And we've been so paralyzed by fear that it's disconnected us from each other and in some ways disconnected us from God, you know, we become when we become paralyzed and so focused about our physical health, we can begin to ne neglect the the interior life and our spiritual health, or neglect others in that regard. And seeking to strengthen them, encourage them, you know, help them deal with their fears and anxieties uh, about this. And I'm not saying the church. Or, or the diocese should have done anything different, you know, in terms of concrete actions, but it's what we communicate. The first thing that we should communicate are not restrictions to protect ourselves from a virus. What we should, for, should first communicate is in a crisis is Christ. For it's in him alone that we find courage and strength to face the, the matter at hand, whatever it might be, and even have the kind of clarity that we need uh, to be able to see things in such a way that we are acting in the, you know, the best interest of others, you know, in the, in, the, in the fullest possible way. And I think if we don't do that, that what we find is the spinning ball, psychological ball of fear and anxiety that develops into a kind of paranoia 
and it ends up making us aggressive towards each other. Because as we become more and more fearful and filled with anxiety, the other becomes a threat to us. Whether or not we see that consciously or not. Uh, one of the things I posted but took down right away because I think I thought people would say, gee, he's really an insensitive wretch, was uh, you remember that post of the Siberian anti-bear suit? It's that suit that's covered with like little sharp uh, knives that stick out of it. And I said, well, I've designed this high-tech uh, social distancing suit. It won't protect you from the virus. But when our paranoia, you know, gets so great that we unleash this beast within, at least we'll have a fighting chance. <laughs> that, you know, once we become so aggressive with each other, at least we'll be armed uh, to protect ourselves in that regard. But because that's could very easily happen. You know, a culture that's driven by fear and anxiety can be manipulated in all kinds of ways, but also, again, this kind of violence can begin to emerge. You know, it's Christ alone who provides us with, uh, again, an invincible and eternal peace of the kingdom. And so if you think as Christians, and as a church, this should be our first response to any crisis, whether it was 9-11, you know, with the, the striking of the towers, uh, with the planes, or this pandemic. What we should be proclaiming, first of all, and loudly, is, is Christ. You know, be not afraid, is, should be, you know, John Paul's constant refrain should be ours, ours as well. And you can tell that's what, that's what people needed the most. And I think even access to the Eucharist in some fashion, form or fashion, uh, would have been the most important thing too. I mean, even if you had to have people simply come and receive communion, have a communion service where you simply are distributing communion. If you can't have more than 25 people in the chapel, you have people prepare themselves spiritually by confession and or have adoration, you know, 24 hours in this in a parish, whatever, where people can come into the presence of Christ, either to gaze upon him or to, to receive him. That would have been the, the strongest and most healing uh, remedy th throughout all of this. Okay. Okay, I've been blathering on here. Any, uh, Ren, did you, or Andrea, did you have more that you wanted to say there? Okay. Ren, Both did you Ren have, huh? Both Ren and Kristen. Okay. Hello. Hello. I just realized I'm not on mute, so here we go. <laughs> um, so first, I wanted to say that I loved Andrea's comment mm -hmm. um, so much. It was so spot on and mm -hmm. so perfect. And it's actually something that has bugged me for a long time now. And what really brought it home is the medal I wear is not a cross or a crucifix. It's actually a monstrance. Mm -hmm. And if it was a cross or a crucifix, mm -hmm. everyone would know what it was. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd go to the store, I'd go get my hair cut, whatever, and everyone knows, like, oh, yeah, cross, crucifix, whatever. But no one has any clue what the monstrance is. So they're constantly saying, <laughs> what is that that you're wearing? And the first few times they asked, I found myself saying... Well, 
in the Catholic Church, we believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist. And then it really started bugging me. And I'm like, I am actually making apologies for a ridiculous belief, aren't I? Like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, oh, in my religion, we believe this real crazy thing. And, uh, and this is the little thing we put him in. And we, we look at him. And, and, I, and I, I realized, like, like, I couldn't say that anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I, if I couldn't look at people and say that it is what it is and not just in my weird church we believe this, then I shouldn't be wearing it because I'm only doing a disservice to the Lord by people asking me what this is mm-hmm. and making it sound like a crazy person. So What a pathetic happened, ploy to meet guys. I'm going to wear this really crazy <laughs> metal. <laughs> so, well, funny you say that because, in fact, the first time I ever forced myself to just say it without any you know, qualification was on the street with two Mormons. <laughs> and uh, it was right after I realized like how terrible it was that I was saying that. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking to these Mormons and they were asking me all these questions and asking me if I had a personal relationship with mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. And I'm like, actually, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> and so then we're, they're like asking me like, well, what do I do when I pray? And I said, well, sometimes I read scripture. But when Ipology went up, we were standing mm-hmm. near the oratory. And I said, but most of the time I go to adoration, which you can actually go to right inside that building right now if you want. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus is fully present in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And so we can come and be with him like immediately. And they're just faces. We're just like. <laughs> like it was just, and I was like shaking a little bit because it was literally the first time yeah. I had ever said that with no qualifications mm-hmm. or no we believe. It was just like, actually, Jesus Christ, who you believe in, is fully present right, right there, mm-hmm. and you can go visit him right now, right. if you want. And so that was very awesome. So I, I loved Andrew's comment, and I think if every Catholic challenged themselves to never qualify their belief in the Eucharist by saying, mm-hmm. as Catholics, we believe that it would really be an extraordinary challenge and like mm-hmm. a beautiful test of faith. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was in response to what Father David was talking about before with like, make, you know, imposing a historicity on Jesus. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, he has one and there's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. Like I remember as a high school student reading, um, the history of Josephus, mm-hmm. and I was blown away when I came up, came upon Jesus in this history of the Jews, and I was like, "Whoa, what is this?" And it was like, you know, this secular Jewish historian talking about this guy named Jesus and all the things that happened in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I I was amazed, and it was so cool. But um, but how that can also be really damaging and not actually what the Lord would desire for us. And it made me think of this thing that's actually been bugging me all day. And I almost posted it on Facebook without the um, the organization's name at the top, but it, it really bugged me. So there was this post today that had to do with Our Lady of Guadalupe. And, like, I have no problem with artists rendering, like, Our Lady of Fatima or Our Lady of Lourdes, these things, because we don't have an image of her. So, you know, you want to, like, play and be creative with how she, you know, might have looked to the children, fine. 
But like Our Lady of Guadalupe came for a very specific reason mm -hmm. and presented herself in a very specific way and mm -hmm. left us with an apparently undestroyable mm -hmm. image of herself mm -hmm. to really give us a message. And it's there's so much meaning and there's mm -hmm. so much beauty behind the Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And this Catholic organization did this post where this artist had completely re-rendered Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. And I guess she looked like what they assumed was a more historically accurate Aztec woman. <laughs> and just like, well, first of all, she looks very like Western Native American, mm -hmm. not Aztec. Like th those people had a very different look. Like you can't just impose your idea of like what a historical woman would have right. looked like back then. Not to mention every detail of her appearance had this beautiful meaning. So they completely redo her. Mm -hmm. She has this like long flowing hair and feathers and like, and she's just totally redone. And I'm like, and then there was this weird post about how she came to teach us about social justice and like this and that. And I'm like, no, she told us exactly why she yeah. came. And she left us an image of exactly how she wanted us to see her. And I was so bothered obviously i'm still very bothered i just like to take something our blessed mother is a real person and she actually appeared and this isn't a nice like artist's rendering of how mary might have appeared she she herself like a true living person assumed into heaven body and soul appeared in the way she wanted and it was so bizarre to just see this powerful apparition of the Blessed Mother reduced to someone's idea of a historically accurate Aztec woman <laughs> who came to bring a message of social justice. <laughs> and it was the first time I've ever seen done to our Blessed Mother what we do to Christ over and over and over again. Right. Where it's like, actually, the image of himself he left us is the Eucharist. <laughs> like... That's the hymn he left us to gaze mm -hmm. on more than anything else. Right. And how often we reduce him in all these weird ways. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah. yeah. And I just, I thought the parallel there is kind of interesting and helpful in some ways because somehow when it came to our blessed mother, it was so shocking because I rarely see it done Right. that I was just like, what is that? And then it seemed to make a lot of well, sense. Well, you're right. You know, as if the, that wasn't powerful enough. The impact of her appearance, of making of her presence, brought to, brought about altogether over the course of time, nine million conversions, which is extraordinary. And I was talking to my mom a little earlier today about you know this happened close to the time of the Reformation you know, where like six million people left the Catholic faith. And then Our Lady of Guadalupe appears and nine million <laughs> convert to Catholicism. And, uh, but it's that the presence that strikes the person to the heart. Okay, Kristen. Yeah, one thing that I've been thinking about mm -hmm. um, you know, in relation to, I guess, uh, you know, the, the historical Jesus, um, is that we as Catholic, this, this kind of like, you know, adds on to the thing that we've been talking about, we as Catholics, I guess, 
somewhat capitulate to that um, and don't extend that historicity to his actual mysteries. Mm -hmm. I still remember the first time that somebody uh, referred to uh, the resurrection as a historical event Mm -hmm. because it was so like, it was, it it absolutely formed me. And it's something that I still remember to this day. Uh, And uh, it, it, it really like, um, in, in, in a, in a way, like took that, you know, what had in, in my life, I guess, you know, at that point had been somewhat on the level of a, of a myth and brought it down mm-hmm. into the reality. reality. And this, this, this mm-hmm. is, you know, something that, that this is an actual, you know, event that happened within history. Um, and the historical Jesus includes these mysteries and it's not just, you know, this, uh, you know, what, what encompasses his physical life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I love how, say, the Christmas proclamation before midnight mass uh, places Jesus, you know, in that specific historical moment. Um, and another thing that kind of helps me with that, like, historicity is uh, seeing, like, relics of the saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's another place where I still remember being at Assisi and looking at, you know, some of St. Francis' robes. And mm-hmm. when you're looking, when you're looking at what, a man, what what the man actually wore. Right. It's hard to you know have this kind of like mm-hmm. you know uh, fairy tale type uh, view right. of him anymore. You're you're you know confronted with the reality mm-hmm. that he, you know that he actually that he actually lived, and you start thinking about well, uh, if you know the Lord could work these miracles of grace in these people, you know there's uh, you know it gives you hope that you know that's also something that's possible for yourself. Right. I've often felt that about the incorrupt saints in particular. I've heard people who have seen Bernadette Subaru in particular, that they'll weep in her presence because it looks like she's sleeping. You know, that there has been no change whatsoever, that she's beautiful. So, well, I don't want to prevent us from getting through all wonderful comments, by the way, comments and questions, all, all excellent. Where did I leave off, though? Um, hmm. Okay. The establishment of his memorial did not issue from the Christ experience of some prophet or apostle, but was ordained by the Lord himself. It rose with the same historical clarity as that which it commemorates. It is even more a part of the life of its institutor, On the evening before his death, Jesus gathered up and placed into his entire it into it his entire destiny that it might be passed on to all men. So in the institution of the Holy Eucharist, Christ places his whole being, his whole person and destiny in order that we might be drawn into that and transfigured and that it might be passed on to all. The Old Testament is neither a nature religion nor the religion of a certain race. It springs from a specific act of God that is the cornerstone of further action. The beginning of the religion of the Old Testament is the beginning of a history, the history of the covenant between God and certain men of his choosing, first with Abraham, then on Sinai with the descendants of Abraham. The event that concerns us here is similar but it exists on an incomparably loftier and more significant plane. It enfolds Jesus' whole historical existence and one holy commemorating act, 
which simultaneously expresses God's new relationship to men. The new covenant founded on the act and person of Jesus Christ. Henceforth, history continues as the history of the kingdom of God among men. And so he makes these two important points here that, you know, it's not simply, again, the religion, a nature religion. It's revealed. God makes himself manifest to specific people, but it's not tied to one culture alone. He engages in a covenant with specific individuals for a particular purpose, all in, in preparation for this greater reality that includes all, the coming of Christ, the coming of our, our Savior. And then uh, history at this point continues to be the history of the kingdom of God among us. So, you know, it prevents us from, again, pushing it back, looking at uh, things linearly as we do as human beings, tied to time, and looking rather seeking through our faith to understand things in terms of eternity, where God is ever present to us. And, you know, this, I think, is something, you know, obviously that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around, you know, that, you know, from all eternity, that Christ is, is present to us and chose to be present to us in this fashion. And, you know, there's something that makes the mind swim a little bit when we try to think about that. But it, because we have to st stop the, thinking about the way that we experience our own life, again, in that linear fa fashion, limited by time, that the whole reality, the whole person, the destiny, the salvation that Christ brings is present to us every time we celebrate the Holy Eucharist. Therefore, when we go to Mass, it is not to participate in a time-honored symbolical act that gives religious expression to our own existence, but in order to commemorate a specific personality, Jesus, and his destiny. This personality is no prophetic, poetic creation. He really lived. He was born in the reign of Augustus in the year of the Roman Emperor, ordered a census-taking of, of his whole empire, he died while Pontius Pilate was the Roman procurator in Palestine. He was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. He lived, taught, and worked outwardly, much like other teachers of his day. Where archaeology to succeed in excavating the synagogue which existed in the time of Nazareth, we could say, here on this spot, Jesus sat when he interpreted Isaiah, and the storm of fury reported in St. John broke loose against him. The Mass is the commemoration of a historic reality. It is a memorial in the strictest sense of the term. So it's this reality that is present to us always and that we are, are drawn into and transfigured by it. And so in, in some ways, we really have to work to approach this through the gift of faith. And, uh, and to approach that relationship with Christ through the gift of faith in order that we are not projecting our limitations onto our understanding of the Mass or who Christ is for us.
It's only through the gift of faith that we begin to encounter him as he is in himself and allow him to engage us in God and direct us in accord with his will and wisdom rather than trying to shape it in accord with our own understanding. And so it's interesting, you know, this one idea shapes not only our understanding, I think, of the Holy Eucharist, but really our whole understanding of, of, of the faith. And I think that's why Guardini could say at the, the beginning of this meditation that it's so rarely understood and we should go un, you know, be willing to undergo great pains to, to grasp it. So again, this, this would be a good one to read over and over again. You know. okay. Any final comments or questions about what we just read or the whole, whole thing? Very powerful, I think. So it should change the way, you know, when we walk into that chapel tomorrow. Let it be through the lens of what we just read. Okay, well, we close there uh, with our prayers always. We'll let Emily mute. I think we all are muted. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. It's always great. What a wonderful way to spend a Saturday night. Yeah. So great.